from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Stephen Best of the English Department discussing his book, None Like Us, Blackness, Belonging, Aesthetic Life. He is joined by Damon Young of the Film and Media and French Departments. So I'm really happy to be here discussing um, with you, Stephen, your amazing book, None Like Us. I'll hold up your copy because mine is <laughs> disfigured with marks. Uh, Blackness, Belonging, and Aesthetic Life, recently honored with the honorable mention at the ASAP Book Prize, and I'm sure there are more prizes to come. So this is a really stunning book. Um, it's both uh, polemical and kind of anti-polemical. Um, it's, it's extremely bold in its arguments, but it's also subtle and... Um, uh, and um, Velvet glovey. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it asks what blackness is. Um, <laughs> That's a, the scope of the question. What is its relation to the history of slavery? And if blackness is a we, a collective identity, then the answer to that question is no. Um, so the book refuses identity. Um, it's about blackness, but it wants to refuse identity and identification, um, and therefore also a politics of affirmation. And it questions the desire um, and this is a quote, for racial belonging rooted in the historical dispossession. So it notes that desire and questions it. That is one goal. But another goal, which is the part that owes more to queer theory, and this book appears in a queer theory series at Duke, is that uh, in the book you want to imagine a black politics, and this is another quote, a black politics that is not animated by a sense of collective condition or solidarity. And that, I think, comes from the anti-communal anti thrust, sometimes called the anti-social thesis in queer theory. So I want to ask you about both of those things if, if we get to, mm -hmm. to all of it. Mm -hmm. The book is fundamentally, however, about um, method, about how we ask questions of the past, what we want from the past, what we want it to render, what we do with an archive that narrates a history of violence or that is itself an enactment of violence in its silences and its occlusions. And so because it's about method, it's not about a particular object. The four essays that make up the book deal with very different objects. Um, the first chapter is on um, quite abstract artworks by the artist L. Anatsui and, and Mark Bradford. There's a chapter on literary works by Gwendolyn Brooks. Oh, sorry, Gwendolyn Brooks is also in the first chapter. There's a chapter on Toni Morrison's novels, which I'll talk about. Um, and then the last two chapters, the, the object evaporates even further. There's a chapter about um, mistaken historical accounts of a suicide bombing that wasn't in, um, in a Dutch colony in the 17th century. And then rumors uh, that fueled insurrections in the Caribbean in the 19th century. And the, the, the false historical account and the, the, the uh, ambiguous ontological status of the rumor, the rumor yeah. kind of the, the point that organizes those chapters. Okay, um, so I'll draw out some of the strands that run through those chapters, but first I actually just want to ask you to explain why did you write this book? 
Right. Okay. So um, I did one of these events, like as you know, last week, um, and I realized that when you um, you should have an elevator speech when you're writing your dissertation, when you're writing your book, but you also need an elevator speech once you finish the book because um, uh, uh, you have to sort of sell it to people. Um, and so I guess uh, I, the, you know the the uh, you know I say in the book that the rumor chapter was sort of the first chapter of the book, and that was because the book really started you you know. You're absolutely right. It, it was in a t I was trying to address what we call in the text-based disciplines the archival turn, right? Um, which you know, uh, um, uh, uh, in my field, just let's just say like African American literary and cultural studies took a particular turn that I was I was. Um, sort of interested in or provoked by. And that is that, like like you say, in that archival turn, the thing that has become a primary point of interest is the way in which the archive itself is, as you put it, a kind of enactment of violence in terms of the silences and exclusions that are kind of uh, ossified, right, in the archive. Um, now, the thing is that with respect to slavery and African-American literary and cultural studies, like African-American literary and cultural studies isn't the only field that deals with the problem of the archive, right? Like these problems of trying to kind of reconstruct the lives of people who didn't leave written records of their lives. That, that would be one way of phrasing it, right? Um, there are other fields that deal with impoverished archives, right? Medieval studies, et cetera, et cetera. But what was unique in like African-American studies was that um, I felt that a lot of scholars of color, right? So I would include the, here both, you know, post-colonial scholars, African-American studies scholars who work on slavery, all seemed to sort of have a kind of, um, there was an added dimension which was a, a kind of, um, melancholy of like um, the, the, like their identities as scholars were somehow implicated in the sort of struggle to recover the lives right um, of the enslaved so that there was like a particular kind of critical what I would what I call a critical disposition or critical comportment in my field that I wanted to kind of interrogate in the book um, now that comportment rested or rests on what I think are like sort of four principles. Um, um, and the, the, these were the principles that I wanted to kind of interrogate in the book, right? Some, some I accept, others I really wanted to kind of in, interrogate. So yeah, you know, the idea of middle passage as like, like founding of some sense of American blackness, um, uh, the idea that African Americans sort of inherit a tradition and a subjectivity from those instances of violence, um, and that this inheritance sort of shapes the community in which, like, African Americans, or it shapes the sense of what an African American community is, a community to which, um, yeah, and, and then the, the, I guess the fourth principle is the one I really wanted to interrogate, which is that in our work as scholars, there was a dimension, there was a, there's an extent to which we sort of come to possess an identity um, and a sense of belonging to a community in the recovery of these lives that are somehow kind of um, missing from the archive. That was the principle that I really wanted to kind of interrogate in the book. So I, 
Can I try to keep going? Yeah. So, so, I, so, so, because, because, so, so, um, because that last turn felt to me like rather than be a kind, rather than working as a kind of critique of American racial logic or race thinking, it seemed to kind of endorse the assumptions about how one performs race, right? In the sense that. Like American race thinking demands that we black people constantly perform our blackness. And paradoxically, that coercion is sort of, or in that coercion is the mandate of a kind of self-reflective choice that we choose to perform it, right? We're choosing to perform it for whatever, like, you know, the eyes of power, et cetera. And I just sort of thought, like I wanted to kind of in interrogate the way in our work we sort of are performing our blackness or our our sense of belonging to a sort of I don't know if that makes sense but yeah. anyway that yeah. was sort of like in the back of my head one of the things that was sort of motivating me so going back to the first of those four things you okay. mentioned the, chapter two begins currently it passes for an unassailable truth that the slave past provides a ready prism for apprehending the black political present um, it's a that's a strong, that's a stunning sentence to begin the chapter. In fact, that's the unassailable truth that you want to assail. That you right. Want. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can yeah, you yeah. say more about that? Um, say more. Like, like, <laughs> you don't have to. We can let it yeah, resonate because yeah, 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 it's yeah. one of the... It's an observation that um, runs throughout the book. And in fact, you're also not saying that the slave past doesn't. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't. <laughs> right, right, right. Determine the black I'm actually laws. trying to create the conditions for asking the question of why do we believe exactly. that it does. And what, right do now. We, what do we find in making in, when we look for the origins of that of, of that of past? That past, right. Look, locatable or not. So, and that was crucially in a chapter where I was trying to explore my sense that Toni Morrison, who in some ways um, is, is sort of the personification of that premise right. in her own work, seems to want, seems to raise the specter that there might be trouble in that formulation. Right, right. So in that chapter, in Toni Morrison's Beloved, um, you find a, a literary prototype, and this is a quote, for a drive to recover death for knowledge as a means of articulating how the past structures our present. And so Beloved functions in the mode of, as a literary text functions in the mode of what you call melancholic historicism. Um, and so the melancholy is the, melan the melancholia of the writer or critic or yeah. researcher. Um, uh, one that invites the transference of the reader. Um, okay, so Morrison provides a literary prototype or model for melancholic historicism, but then she also turns out to provide an alternative to it in her later um, right. novel, A Mercy. Um, and in that book, um, that book disorients the reader and forestalls transference under the trope of abandonment. So both within the, there's abandonment within the plot and there's the abandonment of the reader by the author. And there's, so there's a refusal of the child and of the future and of kinship in the book, which you associate with the text like Lee Edelman's No Future, for example. And then you write that in A Mercy, 
Morrison touches down at the moment before slavery acquired its legacy, that is, its power to claim us. Um, so this, uh, that before opens something. And then you wrote quite poignantly, Inner Mercy, once the filial bond is broken within the, the novel, its affiliative form, racial kinship, again, like across history, appears no more, no more ready to hand as a substitute. We seem less held together by race here and more held together in our abandonment. Mm -hmm. Um, so this trope of abandonment um, is a surprising um, one that comes up th throughout the book in yeah. different registers in relation to visual art and here in the literary text. Um, and I think it's the queer part of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Yeah. Go ahead. Can I say... So, yeah. so the thing I meant to say, thank you for bringing the phrase melancholy historicism back to the conversation. I was really motivated to write this book because I don't feel melancholy is my critical comportment. Right. And I needed to figure out a way to sort of like, how am I going to write in this field and not reproduce the structure of melancholy because yeah. I don't feel melancholic. Yeah. Like when I'm, you know what I mean? I mean, sometimes I do when I'm writing, but like, but that as a critical comportment just didn't, and that's right. Like I was trying to kind of find in queer theory other sort of comportments. I suppose abandonment would be another, do you know what I mean, like yeah. a kind of contrary? It's not, it's not the gay science, it's not joy, right, necessarily, not it's joy. not melancholia. No, no. Can I quote you yeah. something else? Then? Yeah, sure. So instead of melancholic historicism, which reappears throughout the book and is a very um, fascinating account of a critical comportment, as you say, instead you propose a historicism that is not melancholic, but that accepts the past's turning away as an ethical condition of my desire for it. It's a very interesting and complex formulation. Um, so there's our desire for the past, yeah. but, but in many of the things that you talk about in the book, the past doesn't render itself. It, it turns away, and that's not a reason to just be presentist and ignore the past and say the past has no yeah. hold on us, but rather to accept the inherent alienness or... Yeah. Um, opacity or unknowability yeah. of the past and the, our inability to identify with what we find there. Yeah. I mean, I guess another way I would have of phrasing it is that like what I was striving for in, in trying to kind of articulate this different relation to the past was I was trying to kind of formulate a, a across a range of materials, right? Like you say, from contemporary art to like my trips to the archive, hmm. a structure in which it appeared, um, um, or, or a structure in which it, became, it becomes possible for us to acknowledge that sometimes the past pur purpose is to withdraw from purpose. Right. That it's not, it cannot be conscripted to our like political agendas. Right. It can't be conscripted to our political agendas. It can't satisfy our desire for a identification even in the form of grieving and, yeah. and suffering. Yeah. Um, and you, you, you say um, what the suspicious historian finds, and this is another critical comportment you want to avoid, suspicious reading. So what the suspicious historian finds is always what she or he was looking for proto-revolutionaries, proto-peasants, proto-politics. Um, again, another really um, 
amazing claim in the book. So this is all part of what you call the recovery imperative. Yeah. And one of the modes of recovery, what, what do you want to find in the past that's, uh, that is a history of violence? <laughs> one of the things is signs of agency that, yeah. that have been effaced or forgotten. Um, and, but in that desire, there is this, you kind of suggest that we begin already knowing what we're going to find. We want to find proto-political subjects. And so you actually say, what if we, we can't find that and, and, and that is not available? And the other mode is the attachment to the scene of injury as the um, foundation of the black political present. And that's the melancholic historicism. Uh, both fall under the recovery um, imperative. But so, so that's the question of historical method. But there's this idea of a, co of a collectivity that isn't a collectivity that emerges. Blackness isn't a collectivity. And you say you want to imagine you would like to be freed from constraining conceptions of blackness as authenticity, as tradition, legitimacy, and of history as inheritance, memory, and social reproduction, and freed from conceptions of diaspora as kinship, belonging, and dissemination. So insofar as many of those things orient a lot of the ways we think about any identity, yeah. <laughs> what does that leave us with? <laughs> um, in the introduction, I write about James Baldwin yes. and his very kind of um, um, almost infamous relationship with his stepfather, right. which was a, 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 a relation of like um, non-reproduction, right? Like the father... His father, he very, very much felt like his father despised his children for embracing a world that would not embrace him, the father, right? Exactly. right? Yeah. Like that, in that structure of like non-identity, yeah. right, was fascinating to me precisely because I felt like it was reproduced in my own relationship with my father who was incredibly proud of me, but like still there was that, that sense of like somehow an intergenerational gap or absence or non-relation, right? We are, we are kin, but non-identitarian or in a non-identitarian way. Yeah, because his, your uh, success in the, in the Is me entering a world that he prepared me for, prepared but that for, but couldn't would not accept him. Exactly, yeah. Same thing, Yeah. right? Yeah. Love and I don't know, um, uh, uh, in the Baldwin case, what we want to call it, like, but, but I, I'm, I just was, I'm interested, I was just interested in the, like those, like those intergenerational, like short circuits. Yeah. They are real. Yeah. They're part of like the structure of blackness. Yes. And I wanted to kind of think about like both like what use can be made of those instances as a kind of aesthetic life, yeah. but also like how, like how that might provide a structure for me to think about or rethink the way we in our field think about scholars and their relationship to the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that figure of the, the genealogy that isn't one. The genealogy that isn't one, right. The kinship that's based on mutual non-belonging, where the father can't recognize the son. It begin, the book begins with these two parallel stories of fathers and sons, James Baldwin and his father, and you and your father, the biographical moment. 
And in, a set, in both cases, um, the non-belonging is marked as queer because that's part of the disaffiliation, is that yeah. the father can't recognize or doesn't know how to recognize the son's queerness. But it's also the sense of that the father has pre prepared the son for a world that, he, that couldn't have him. Yeah. And that's the significance of the title, None Like Us. Yeah. Um, so this, the kind of subjective voice of the book after that is it carries this queerness that comes from the Baldwin and your anecdote about your father. But beyond that, queerness seems to be um, not sexuality, uh, certainly not identity, um, not even homosexuality, but, but um, something about the social bonds formed through negativity or uh, through non-recognition and non-relation. Yeah. Is, is that yeah. why you published it in a queer theory series? Yes. Okay. Yes. But I did want to add, like, uh, at, at, you know, another book event, uh, I came up, I was introduced to this uh, quote by Richard Thomas Ford, and I want to read it because I feel like it actually says something about, like, um, I mean, I'm interested in a recent interest in queer theory, black studies in like the d disillusion of traditional identity categories, mm -hmm. right? right. That, I mean, that's just my general interest. And, and this quote from Ford, I want to read it because I, I would love it if it were part of the conversation. It just really gets at like the, the afterlife of race. Like what, what, like what, you know, I'll read, I'll read it when you talk about it. Right, so um, it's a great quote. Um, I may need to. Uh, Richard Thomas Ford, who um, is a law professor across the bay at Stanford, um, he sort of writes, it may be that the price of providing our descendants with a world free of social stigma and oppression of identities such as race, a world we could be proud to call more just, is that they would not share our identities, that they would be our heirs but not our descendants. Like that's a vision of like, well, what would the polit what would the politics of like a kind of it's not post identity, but it's like if if the world we created were one in which the identity categories that operate today no longer operated. Mm -hmm. That's I, I feel in a way like that's what I was trying to kind of think through, think about mm -hmm. in uh, along a variety of like arcs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We we are disaffiliated from the future. We are disaffiliated from the future. Right? And from the past, even while we exist in this yeah. <laughs> set that, of disjunctive relations to that's both. That's David Walker at the beginning of the appeal to colored citizens of the world sort of saying, I pray God that none like us ever may live again, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's the same thing, that he's imagining a world in which the categories that operate today no longer operate, and that's the world we bequeath, but it's not an identity that we hand down to the future. So uh, that's a, it's a, it's a very abstract um, conception because it can't be grounded in representation. It's yeah. not about representing your identity um, or, or identifying with a figure in the or past. Or mutual acknowledgement of right. like being seen in the, by the other. Yeah. So instead it seems like you're looking for um, 
figures or objects to ground that the elaboration of that conceptual thought. And what you turn to, surprisingly, is um, abstract art. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about that too. Um, what is art, um, visual art, uh, especially in non-figurative art, um, doing for you in this way of thinking about blackness? So in the same way that sort of as the historian or cultural historian, um, uh, we don't always find what we're looking for in the archive. I sort of think as writers, the books we produce aren't always the books we thought we were going to produce, right? Um, and so in this case, I actually wrote a version of this book that had, like each chapter was about a different kind of conundrum of the archive. Like there was a chapter on witchcraft, there was a chapter on rumor, there was a chapter on suicide. Um, and when I finished that draft of the book, um, I was really disappointed. I just felt like, that, is that what I really set out to write? I just didn't feel like I, and, and at that time, I was writing about Morrison and Immersi. And this is not an explanation for why abstraction is in the book. It's an explanation for why these, like these particular like contemporary artists are in the book. Um, so I'm thinking about the problem of the archive trying to have a non-melancholic relationship to the past, to the archive. And in the you know, midst of my whatever writing days, I'm walking over to SF MoMA and just looking at art. Because you live across the road. Because I live across the road. <laughs> and, and, and I, this was years ago when SF MoMA did the sort of major, first major retrospective of the work of Mark Bradford. And I just found Mark Bradford's canvases incredibly good to think with mm. in this project. And so I said, well, the project actually then has to be about that. It has to be about the materials that are helping me to think about the kind of conceptual problem that I want to explore in the book. And whatever. I was also an art history major um, who likes writing about, like, art. So, so I was just like, just do that. Like, don't, you know, I, I don't have to be a literary critic. Like, I can just write about whatever. There's something about the way form um, renders concepts in this book that's 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 amazing. Um, in the um, Al Anatsui piece, um, there are these beautiful um, creations made from like bits of trash, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> and yeah. it's a, your readings about the trompe l'oeil between um, opulence and trash, yeah, that, yeah. an oscillation which resonates with certain. Um, uh, configuration of blackness in, in the way that you think about it. I think I understood a lot more from reading this book what you mean by surface reading in your earlier work. Right. Um, in the, the, it's not that the archive, I see Tim, um, oh. the, the, the archive hides hidden truths, but that what's the indeterminacies, ambiguities on the surface of the archive or on the surface of the artwork themselves are uh, what we have to work with. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but so I, I want to let the audience get involved in the Q&A. We've covered a lot of ground here, so feel free to um, jump in on, on any point or something else if uh, anybody has questions for Stephen. Or you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you. Sorry. All right, you've got to wait for the mic microphone. Thanks so much. Um, 
I, first, it's just it was it was really exciting. Um, I'm sitting next to someone who also had this experience of of studying 19th century African American literature with you at a time when you were working out this critical position. And um, I have two questions. Maybe you can just answer whichever is more interesting. But first, just a question about. Um, the, the writerly process and some of the rhetorical challenges of writing a book which um, enunciates a critical position which may not already be conceptually available and therefore may risk um, being oversimplified um, uh, when it's read. Yeah. Um, and so it, just the question about the challenges of, of writing that almost like from a sentence to sentence um, basis. And the second question is, um, just, um, I find that th that this work is really challenging for me personally in terms of challenging my conception of how I think about uh, belonging and community. And uh, one of the premises in particular that it challenges for me is is uh, a premise held dear by me, which is that the experience of trauma and racial trauma in particular um, is associated with a standpoint of privileged knowledge. And I'm wondering if you think that's a position, that's something that needs to be given up if a melancholic position is given up. Say the second, the second is way, is more interesting, more interesting to me. Okay. So like say, like I, I want to, un, I want to really understand. So just the idea that the experience. You're, 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 you're saying you're attached to a conception of trauma. Yeah, that, is, that there's a link between the standpoint of, uh, of trauma, or let's say the experience of of trauma with a standpoint of privileged knowledge. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I wanted you to repeat it because I, because it's like, I thought, I think the first time I heard what I wanted to hear, okay. which was like the idea that somehow, like you're, you were attached to like, um, a, a belief or a sense that sort of trauma is related to privilege, which for me is like, yeah, that's one of the things I try to say in the book, which is that like melancholy is an elite affect, right? It's the, it's the, like, you know, people who are suffering trauma are not being melancholic about it, right? Like they're just living. Um, so mel yeah, like, it, so, but you said privilege knowledge and that's slightly different, um, but I'd be, it, I, 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 don't, I can't sort of think or babble my way to insight, a further insight, but, 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 that, but that, that's an interesting thought. But anyway, yes, I, I kind of, yeah, you know, like um, Anita Sikorsky in the Melancholy Persuasion sort of says, yeah, melancholy is like, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of bourgeois affect. Um, and it's, yeah, and, that, and that's kind of the point I was trying to, making just identifying a comportment in my field that I kind of felt like it was the comportment of the scholar who who in his or her work is trying to sort of forge their bond to a, a larger body, right? So, yeah. Yeah, so I guess I agree. But also it, it is something I'm trying at least myself to abandon. But also, belonging and community um, are not the terms that you want to. You, you're trying to. You mentioned those terms as a, which, which is how many, we all experience identity is belonging and community. Yeah. But in fact, you're trying to understand blackness that's not about belonging or community. Yeah. Um, 
So those uh, are terms that are kind of bracketed or put under a ratio yeah. in the book. Yeah, Catherine. Oh, wait. Oh. Mike. <laughs> I have a question related to that, actually, because um, it's really interesting or it's so moving to um, read Richard Thomas Ford about a, f a juster future in which particular identities are, are lost. They're dissolved in these greater, better conditions. Mm -hmm. But I wonder, too, if this um, disaffiliation and this sort of setting against a collectivity through identification with past suffering is also a very interesting scholarly methodology in that maybe people come together to disagreeing with one another in the present so that it becomes much more about a kind of vibrant and maybe conflictual relation to others that is actually possibly more meaningful because it is dynamic and dialogic. Yeah. I think my... <laughs> I was about to say, we're not mic but we are mic um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> And broadcast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say, like, the evidence is not that there, like, that, like, this kind of, like, you know, the, uh, this um, conceptually unprecedented thesis has been welcomed as, like, an invitation to disagreement. Mm. Community in disagreement. Mm -hmm. You know, not entirely. I mean, whatever, it's still early. Um, but, but, but do you mean, uh, you're talking about scholarly community, how scholarly community. Yeah. I like, I think I, I feel how brave it is. You know, it's very brave to come out with something that is run so against the mainstream. Yeah. And, uh, but that this, that the payoff is the one we should all be looking for, which is really about meaningful communication, not just, you know, reiteration yeah. of the norm. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking for a figure of togetherness that will redeem <laughs> and produce some possibility. Yeah, of, and, yeah and it is, it is a togetherness. Uh -huh, People are exactly. actually paying attention, yeah, yeah. responding to one another. Yeah. There is a togetherness in the book. That's the thing. Yeah. It just doesn't take any of the forms of identification or transference or community yeah. or belonging. But it's not a book about solipsism and isolation either. There, no, there's no, no. a community of people who have nothing in common in the genre. And I very much, I, and I very much <laughs> try to like, I very much try to structure that sense of a community that is non-identitarian in the prose of the book. Right. Right. It's That's extremely engaged with many. It's so referential. You're in dialogue constantly in the book with other scholars. So yeah. even while there's this bold refusal of um, dominant stances you're there is your there's a performance of a community in disaffiliation yeah. enacted within the your own method yeah sorry i interrupted you yeah oh sorry. okay You'd be next <laughs> um yeah my name is lisa bloom um i just sort of hearing you talk makes me think strangely of a book that I wrote um, in the mid-2000s called Ghosts of Ethnicity, Jewish Identities in American Feminist Art. Mm -hmm. And I, was, I wrote a book that did not put the Holocaust as the main point of return. And I also um, sort of tried to um, sort of deal with ethnicity outside of religion. And, and it wasn't a melancholic book. Mm -hmm. And it dealt with contemporary art, but it was also a feminist book. So I didn't take identity completely out of the equation mm -hmm. in the way you did. But trying to imagine this kind of post, you know, sort of a feminist art production 
you know, 70s and on, mm -hmm. going against the abstract expressionists and the kind of older history of a kind of Jewish art that came out of the Holocaust that was deliberately abstract to get away from identity. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, you know, so you're, you're doing another turn on this. And yeah. Not that the two are comparable, but, you know, but many of the issues sort of like genocide and yeah. all these things are continuous and sort of yeah. artistic, you know, response to this. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I just was, you know, but one of the issues I was grappling with, and this might pertain more to your work, was how Jewish identity became ossified in terms of like an ethnic nationalism that, you know, imp that connected religion with culture. And it was inseparable. I mean, this is not the case in what you are doing. But so I wanted to kind of free it of the ethno-nationalism in a certain sense and think about, you know, again, sort of shifts in generation where we're not reproducing the same or we're at a distance or we're disagreeing, literally, yeah. as you were saying, yeah. generationally. Yeah. So I don't know. I just yeah. thought that there were some parallels or yeah. things to think through. Yeah. Um, you know, and so yeah. you might not want to yeah. take and some of these things completely out of the picture because I think yeah. it's a kind of really important perspective that is important. I mean, I had yeah. to bring in the feminist perspective because it was like a critique of abstract expressionism. And of course, it was located in a specific post-World War II history that was peculiar to the United States. Um, but anyway, yeah. um, I just think you might want to, you know, I mean, you might want to think through the parallels yeah. even though... You know, yeah. anyway. No, no, thank you for that. Um, I want, I kind of, li listening to you, Lisa, um, wanted to sort of um, bridge back to the earlier question about like the occasion for like a sort of scholarly community. Like, I think, I think that's right. Like, I think that if there's a kind of um, conviction in this book, it's a very cosmopolitan conviction in the sense that I really believe that the cultivation of, and this is sort of why I wanted to write about, say, Anatsui, a war, you know, the, these works that, um, I, you know, um, they're not representational, but they're an occasion for, they're a frame or an occasion for a kind of aesthetic, um, I don't know, in my case, just like analysis. Like, uh, uh, the conviction is sort of the conviction that, like, uh, the, my conviction is like the, the cultivation of like curiosity and attentiveness is the sort of appropriate tool for fostering connection mm -hmm. between people, between, you know what I mean, across identities. Yeah. Um, um, rather than like the like like uh, I don't know like like claim, claim you know claiming a kind of genealogy or mm -hmm. or putting yourself within a specific genealogy I don't know if that makes sense yeah. just yeah there's an encounter too is it yeah figure for a meeting that's uh, yeah um, but I also just this, the book also is about queerness and blackness that's what's kind of paradoxical about it and it is about the slave past at least. Uh, three of the four chapters deal with the archive of slavery. So it's, it's interesting. It's not an attempt to escape identity in the sense of being post-identitarian, colorblind yeah. at all. It, it's, it's as committed to feminist, anti-racist, queer um, theorizing as um, 
any book that's more explicitly identitarian. That's that's the paradox that you work with in the book. That's that's quite fascinating. But thank you. You had a you had a question before. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it kind of moves in the realm of the like thoughts that are being had, I guess. And it's a question actually about. Um, that stems from the articulation, Stephen, of the disaffiliation between like you and your father, James Baldwin and his stepfather, or that you see in kind of like spaces of black study where like Spillers gives in a kind of cruise, disaffiliating from his. Like, yeah. And I'm wondering about how much of those disaffiliations in any of the registers occur across like experience, like experiences that are had, and that you're like a part of the new method or what might be proposed, especially in the chapter on art, for example, is that somehow like there might be a new place where something like identity could come out if it was in like experiences that can actually be had by the the, um, the critics or scholars which are having like so that you can keep returning to the artwork and that experience that the, all the scholars could return to the artwork and somehow in that experience there would live like a, a capacity for maybe a more like fugitive identity than one that kept having recourse to this like apparently stable past. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that just remind like um, I had a conversation with a friend recently about um, uh, I haven't read this piece but it's a piece on I think it's called the uh, I, I wrote the, the it um, uh, oh the blackness of Rachel Dojel right you remember Rachel Dojel um, uh, Rachel Dojel she was the uh, well some people in the room may not know who Rachel Dojel was Rachel Dojel was um, she is uh, the the woman who is running a branch of the NAACP in Washington State, I believe, and her parents sort of outed her as actually being a white woman and not a black woman, which she was passing as black, and she was pilloried, right, for in this moment. And the the um, uh, the piece by Marquise Days, who's this professor at Northwestern, is sort of begins with the premise of like, wh why what like why don't we begin with the like the question of why, why did this person see blackness as a, an escape from the white femininity that was being imposed on? Like, why don't we begin the question that way? That like blackness is a fugitive identity that like she felt could like free her from a vision of white femininity that she did not want to occupy. Why is it we don't ask the question that way? Why is it that we pose the question in terms of cultural appropriation mm -hmm. as if she has a genealogy that's proper to her and one that's improper? Does that kind of make sense? Like that, I mean, that's sort of for me why it's like blackness is here, but it is not here in the form of like sort of traditional identity categories that are properties that are to be owned. Their, their standpoints, their positions. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of make sense? Like why I might want to sort of shift the sense of blackness from, you know, blackness is like, yes, a fugitive identity. That's like, I'm much happier with that formulation, I suppose, given my first book than with the sense of it as cultural property. I think we have time for one more question. One more. I just want to say thank you. I'm coming here as a someone with a comportment of deep gratitude. I haven't read your book. I haven't been exposed to it at all until today. But um, your mm. work is really important, and I'm really glad that you're doing it. Oh, so wow. thank you. Thank you. Um, secondly, I was at the 400-year symposium um, that was held at iHouse about uh -huh. the 16... Oh, yeah, 1619. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And um, I was introduced to the work of Christina Sharp. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm assuming mm -hmm. that you're already her oh, yeah. conversation partner intellectually, yeah. and I want you guys yeah, yeah. to collaborate yeah. on something. Yeah, she's so. great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, thanks. That was 
questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> there is, yeah, there yeah, is yeah. a question at the back. I think we have a few minutes. We have three minutes. <laughs> curious more about the affects that you uh, see or affective postures or comportments or um, stances that critics could take but also maybe that these t certain texts might also take or certain artworks might also yeah. take in uh, conceiving of a kinship that's not based on identity. Um, I wrote down uh, you, you speak of curiosity, attentiveness, finding um, the comportment that would find kinship in abandonment, um, but also you speak of negativity, or a negativity as being maybe a posture that can still um, find, or a, um, a negative affect perhaps might, that could still find a place for um, this kind of non-identitarian kinship. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe speak more about um, the postures and comportments that you would like to encourage in among scholars and also maybe that you'd like to sort of celebrate in art. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, it's like uh, your question sort of reminding me um, of, uh, for example, I don't quite, what, how would, what, what name would I apply to this comportment? But like, one of the things that I think is just sort of brilliant about, or, you know, just, um, um, fascinating say about Mark Bradford's canvases is that the canvases, so the so his canvases are made up of like all these layers of paper. They're 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 very um, um, he kind of glues layers of paper on top of one another, and then at a certain pro point in the process, he sort of belt sands the surface. So like parts of the underlying kind of material reveal themselves, but but you don't know, you know, you don't actually know what's underneath the surface of those paintings. And I, I'm fascinated by the work precisely because it it both kind of it's it both triggers a kind of perceptual itiner like a, a, a kind of curiosity as to what is like um, immured, right, within its surface, but then it, it's just rigorously sort of forecloses any possibility of gaining access to that, and I just kind of, for me, that was the kind of, the overriding critical comportment in the book, was was trying to kind of deal aesthetically with the problem of, like... Non-knowledge. Curiosity and, like, curiosity, like, I don't know, Oh, frustrated isn't the right word, but there's a, there's a which requires a modesty, right? A kind it, yeah. Of, yeah, and a, an ability to encounter something without making a knowledge claim about it. Right. Yeah, right, and thereby right. asking it to render something that you, in fact, give it in advance. Right, 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 right. Um, yeah, go ahead. I don't know what to call that, but yeah, but, yeah. that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in the series.